electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Claire Odimodi. Today, what scares investors? This unbelievably serious backdrop of a potential nuclear incident or World War III. Is this just the same to market players for previous things like this? Our own Michael Santoli remembers the lessons of market history. You know, for half a century, we lived under the shadow of a nuclear threat, and the market did well over point to point. This again? COVID infections spiking in certain countries. Dr. Scott Gottlieb on what it means. Europe is seeing a wave of infection right now. We're about three weeks behind Europe, but we also have the benefit of getting further into the spring, which is going to provide some seasonal backstop. And taming the wild west of cryptocurrency. The senators, the advocates, and the concerns of ill-gotten gains. Perianne Boring of the Digital Chamber of Commerce. We've got to be able to distinguish between the facts and the fears. And these knee-jerk reactions to want to regulate cryptocurrency could have significant unintended consequences. All that today, plus brackets busted. It's great basketball. Great it basketball. Is. It is. It's Friday, March 18th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand by, Joe. In three, two, one. Here's Mike. Here. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan, along uh, with Brian Sullivan, who we have got here just for, for uh, March. Bit. No, that's, that's actually not why. Uh, Becky's out today. Andrew's out today. Brian, it's good to have you here, although I don't think you finished your bracket. And I, I almost, did you finish it? I almost texted you and said, what, what's the problem? Because I like it when I see your name there. Did you finish your bracket? I, well, there's actually like three entries for me somehow. I don't know what happened, Joe. Yeah, one unfortunately, of I did finish my bracket. Yeah, no, it's not good. The one that's finished is horrible. I mean, I'm, I'm out already. <laughs> I think I got every game wrong yesterday. I'm not kidding. I was 27 and three in public bets. I post them on Twitter coming into yesterday, and I got I got my hat handed to me. It's a lesson in humility. St. Peter's. Uh, uh, it's great basketball. Great it basketball. Is. It is. Iowa. I mean, you know, I, I had Iowa going to the final. Let, let's we, we'll talk later. Let's get this. Uh, you know, we have to do this. U.S. equity, not have to. This is what we do. We begin today with the markets and something of a relief rally. The S&P 500 is on track for its best week since November 2020. The blue chip Dow is on a four day winning streak. Why the good mood? Investors' expectations were largely met by the Federal Reserve's highly expected shift in monetary policy. Earlier this week, the central bank hiked its benchmark interest rate for the first time since 2018 and signaled six more increases before the end of the year. But on the flip side, there is still war in Ukraine and its potential impact on the U.S. economy. Oil prices globally on the way up for the last two days, which could lower sentiment and fan the flames of worry about, you guessed it, inflation. Has this happened before? Time for this market history moment. 
I had placed an emergency call to Mike Santoli uh, this morning, and, and you answered the call. It's half true. I did get an emergency call. <laughs> it just yeah. wasn't for me. I told you uh, my brackets are busted. What can I do? Uh, maybe I can, I don't know, try to make some in-game bets to try to, once the teams I pick are already down. Sure. It's been a good week for the S&P. These are all the facts you know. Very right? good week. Uh, three days, S&P up almost 6%. Um, obviously had this big tension release when you get through the Fed. We've been anticipating it for uh, for four months. What's interesting, and obviously we're backing off a little bit today, probably to be expected after that ramp over three days, uh, we did get the, the indexes right up to the level. If, if this is a sell the rips market, and everybody seemed to gather around that idea as we kind of, kind of started to slide lower in January, this is exactly where you would see people say, okay, I think I could sell some here. I think I could reshort because it, it's still in this little bit of a downtrend. But I have to say, you shouldn't really dismiss the kind of strength that's two 2% up days followed by a 1% uh, follow through. Maybe it's just a lot of people who just were caught a little bit too defensive as the market responded okay to what happened uh, with the Fed. And, or, you know, maybe the Fed uh, essentially just caught up to where the market was. I think that's the other uh, possibility out there. Mike, being a, uh, a market historian and, and around forever, and, and one of the founders of Barron's, uh, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when was it? It was well, like founded was in like 18... 18th... Clarence Barron. Yeah. In 1921. 19... Okay, so you're not quite a founder, but I think of you almost as a founder. Does this, this unbelievably serious backdrop of a potential nuclear incident or World War III, is, is this just the same to market players for previous things like this that are buying opportunities, or is it something different in, I don't your, think in your gut? I don't think it's outright... A, a buying opportunity to the point where you say, if that was the only thing going on, and you know the history of geopolitical events, and the fact that, you know, for half a century, we lived under the shadow of a nuclear threat, uh, and the market did well over point to point, um, I, I, I do feel like it's mostly uh, a complication of an already tricky environment. Uh, but... You know, look, it's exacerbating all the things we were worried about coming in, right? Supply chain stuff, oil. We, we know that. The Fed. Half the people we come in, they, they view the war in Ukraine as a prism to analyze what right. Jay Powell may or may not do, which is, you know, it's, war, it's warped, but it is, it is no, what happens. What I will say, though, is um, it's, it's one of those things that it's, it's absolutely widened out the range of potential outcomes, right? We came into this year... U.S. economy growing 11% nominal. 11% nominal. That's real plus inflation. It's just a lot of activity and a lot of momentum going in. And now we have this, this interruption in that uh, whole thing. Oil becoming less a, a sign of a recovery and more uh, a friction point in the world. So, uh, in general, geopolitical events don't have staying power. I've been talking about 1962. I remember. Wasn't there. Right. Was, but we had a 20% You had to point decline. that out. And look at me when you say you weren't there. Yes, I was there. Well, you, I don't know if you were trading or betting basketball at the time. But yeah, I was a savant. <laughs> uh, you had, it was one of the rare 20% non-recession right. bear markets. When did it kind of culminate? Cuban Missile Crisis. Exactly. Um, so these things, they, they rhyme to some degree. Okay. Good to have you here. And, and Brian, thank you for, for being there for me, too. I'm always there for you, Joe. You know that. Whether it's basketball or Ukraine, whatever you want to talk about, I am here for you. And Mike, I don't know. I'm sure you know this, and Joe probably knows it. I didn't know it until I read it this morning from J.P. Morgan. We have the fifth worst start to a year for the S&P 500 
since 1927. I knew yeah. it was rough, Mike. I didn't real even with the good gains we had this week. I didn't realize it was that bad. Yeah, 09 is, is on that list, I would imagine. Uh, I think 1935. Now, I, I did see some work there, though, when it's been this bad this fast uh, in a new year. Uh, usually there's, there's been a, a turn, and they actually didn't always end that badly, although, uh, you know, 09 was no fun uh, along the way. Yeah. Next on Squawk Pod, just when you thought it was safe to go maskless. We'll bring you up to speed with the latest rise in COVID cases in Europe and Asia and what experts are saying the U.S. can do about it. Former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb joins us. I don't think we're going to go backwards this spring on masks and other kinds of mitigation. And I think we'll get through it and we'll continue the declines as we get into the spring and the summer. We'll be right back. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. All right, guys, we're in the B block right now. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Roll, pray, track, take. You are watching Squawk Box. Becky and Andrew off today, so I'm not either one of them. I am Brian Sullivan, along with Joe Kernan, who's a regular on this show, and Michael Santoli as well. Hi, guys. Hey. Did you? I almost said welcome back to Squawk Box, Chippendales edition. Um, I, I don't know. Is that overstating it, do you think, Brian? Am I, I'm just totally out of my no. mind. Aren't, no, it's like that Australian Thunder show you see advertised in Las Vegas. This is the we're the backups. <laughs> yeah, I, we're like, I think. Well, since Chippendales is kind of an '80s thing, I mean, I saw it again though. I, it, it, I just saw it in, on a Sam Elliott quote or something. I love that guy. He, he's really funny. He was talking about something. Was a, oh yeah, Power of the Dog. Yes. Yeah, that's right. All right. We. I didn't want to take it. I've not bride. seen it, but, but I've, it's 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 on my list. Yeah. All right, it's guys. Good. Yeah, it's, we're going to move not much on. Of a Western, Folks, you can vote. Hold on. We should screenshot this. Vote now. Who has the best tie? Oh, we can just do like a okay. thing. All right. Good. That's, yeah, that, that, I can deal with that. COVID cases and hospitalizations ticking higher in Europe and the UK. Uh, is this a harbinger for what the U.S. is in for? Meg Terrell joins us now with more. Hi, Meg. Hey, Joe. Well, of course, it has been a harbinger in the past, and that's why these upticks in some European countries are gaining a lot of attention here in the U.S. Uh, graphs like this one showing upticks in countries like Austria, France, the U.K., 
Germany. Experts say this is being driven by essentially three potential factors. One is waning immunity. The second, of course, is the lifting of precautions like masking and social distancing. And the third is this Omicron subvariant known as BA2, which is at least 30% more transmissible than the original Omicron. Of course, people question, does this mean hospitalizations are also rising? And they are in some countries, including in the UK, up 20% uh, over the last week there. Now, the question is, what does this mean for the United States? Will we see a rise in cases and in hospitalizations? Well, we have all the same factors contributing to uh, what's happening here in the U.S. as well. And one thing that counts against us, unfortunately, is that our booster rate is a lot lower than in some European countries. 48% of adults in the U.S. versus 67% in the U.K. And so that means we're less protected, at least by boosters. We, of course, had this huge Omicron surge, and it's hoped that will provide immunity uh, to keep whatever is coming here in the U.S. from causing a lot more hospitalizations. But BA2, that more contagious subvariant, has been gaining in prevalence in the U.S., up to about a quarter of cases as of last week, according to the CDC. And that differs, of course, regionally. About 40% of cases are caused by BA2 in the Northeast, and it's expected to be even potentially higher in some states right now. So this is starting to take over. Whether this leads to a surge now, of course, is the main question. We've all heard about the wastewater data rising in some parts of the country, the levels of the virus they're seeing. Uh, however, there's been some questions about how much we should read into that. This is a model from Columbia University suggesting we're essentially at the trough of cases right now and that we could start to see them rise nationally through April. Of course, guys, caveats, this is a model. There's a lot of uncertainty to it, but unfortunately, we could be at the trough of cases at about 30,000 and starting to rise again. And what that will lead to, of course, is the big question everybody's got. Joe? All right, Meg, uh, thank you. Joining us now, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor, also serves on the boards of Pfizer and Illumina. If we were to get another round, if you will, another surge, would it be BA2, doctor? It would be. Yeah, it would be BA2 at this point. Probably BA2 represents about 50 percent of all cases in many parts of this country right now. The CDC data is lagging. Certainly the data coming out of Connecticut suggests that. So we already have a high prevalence of BA2. We're starting to see some uptick in data in cases if you look at the wastewater data, as Meg alluded to. Um, and we'll probably see that flow through in terms of diagnosed cases and some rise in hospitalizations. I don't think this is going to be another major wave of infection, but we're probably going to go up from here before we continue the declines. It's true that Europe is seeing a wave of infection right now. We're about three weeks behind Europe, but we also have the benefit of getting further into the spring, which is going to provide some seasonal backstop against a very big surge of infection. Could we get to 60,000 cases a day or somewhere around there? It's possible that we get back to those kinds of levels before we start to decline again. But as we have this mini bump, and I think it's going to be some kind of mini surge, um, as we get further into the spring and the summer, we should see cases start to come down again. So it's going to be a lot like last spring where we saw a bump up of infections in the springtime from B117, and then we continued our declines. and We had very low levels in June and July. Well, it just the, the most important question I was, you know, I, I thank you for all that information. But where I was going to go after that was what do we know about the pathology of BA2 in in vaccinated individuals, in unvaccinated individuals and in individuals that have already had natural immunity from either Delta or Omicron? How dangerous is BA2? Is it got, is it getting progressively less pathogenic? And if it is, 
when do we start moving into that next mindset that you have predicted all along, that it's going to be endemic and not much different than seasonal flu or, or maybe even not as bad as that? Are we there already? And if we are, are we going to make too much of this just because they count as COVID cases? But there, there's, if there's no hospitalizations, even in unvaccinated people, and if there's no serious uh, uh, disease, even or in people that have already had one or the other, Delta or Omicron, should we be playing it up as much as we are? Yeah, look, I think that's the key point. Um, we probably shouldn't see a big spike in hospitalizations because a lot of the people who are hospitalized during the Omicron wave were people who are unvaccinated. And many people who are unvaccinated have already had Omicron. And what we know is that the immunity that you get from Omicron is very protective against this BA2 variant. They're, they're similar enough that the, there's cross immunity between these two strains. There was a study out of, um, I think it was Dubai, the United Arab Emirates, that showed about 95% protection from prior infection from BA1. Uh, providing cross-immunity BA2. The data out of the UK suggests that BA2 is no more pathogenic than BA1. It doesn't lead to an increased rate of hospitalizations. Um, it's not making people more seriously ill. The vaccine seems equally protective against BA2, if not a little bit more protective. So there's no reason to believe that the contours of this wave from BA2 should be any different than what we experienced with BA1, and probably less so because we have so much Omicron immunity in the population. At least 50 to 60 percent of Americans have had Omicron at this point. And many of those who've had it are people who are un unvaccinated. So now they have immunity from Omicron that's going to persist for at least nine, uh, 90 days and probably upwards of six months. That's going to provide them protection against getting reinfected or getting seriously ill with BA2. Dr. Gottlieb, it's Brian Sullivan. I, I, I'm, you know, I feel a little bit frustrated with our own industry sometimes, the media, because we, we have this weird fascination with cases. Even though the most serious people like you in the business have said very clearly, we got to stop focusing on cases, focus on outcomes, yet we're still obsessed with this case count stuff. And we look at hospitalizations in the UK and people hear the stories that cases are on the rise in the UK and it sets off all kinds of panic. Here's the thing. Hospitalizations in the UK since November 1st have fallen by 74% or ventilations beds in hospitals by 74%, indicating the cases that are in the hospital either A, may not be that serious, there's hospitalizations, but mechanical ventilation beds have gone the exact opposite. I bring this up, doctor, because we're learning and we learned the hard way that we failed to differentiate between people who went to the hospital for a broken leg or a car wreck with those, and then tested positive with those who went because they had serious COVID-related symptoms. Do you think, once again, we are sort of missing that key critical point? Ooh, hospitalizations are up, but we have no idea how many of those people are actually there for COVID and ventilation beds are down 74% indicating even if they are, that perhaps those cases are not as serious. Yeah, look, you're right. We should be focusing on the impact from COVID, uh, you know, and we are starting to do that. The new CDC uh, database that they put out looking at the impact of COVID is focusing more on hospitalizations rather than on cases. You know, previously, cases have been a good predictor, a good proxy for what the impact of the 
the disease was going to be, what the hospitalization rate was going to be, that started to decouple dramatically during Omicron, in part because we had a lot of immunity in the population from vaccination and prior infection, in part because Omicron was a less virulent strain overall. So I think you are seeing public health officials start to transition to focusing on the impact of the disease, things like hospitalizations, and away from just looking at cases. It's arguably a slow transition, but it is happening. In terms of people being hospitalized with COVID rather than for COVID, um, that was really a phenomenon from Omicron and something that we need to consider now going forward is that more people or many people are being hospitalized and either getting infected in the hospital or they have an incidental Omicron infection. They're being hospitalized for an orthopedic procedure or an obstetrical procedure and they're infected with Omicron. Doctor, almost out of time. So in South Korea, there's an article out that the, the new wave over there is being met with, with a giant yawn that they're not taking any, they're, they're re- removing all restrictions and all lockdowns, everything else, even though cases are rising. They have a lot of people vaccinated, more than us, I think. Um, but uh, over here, and Brian, to Brian's point, so Dr. Fauci emerged from I don't know where, an undisclosed secret location, but he emerged long enough to say um, that we are, we could face more lockdowns. We need to be flexible. And if, in fact, we do see a turnaround and a resurgence, we have to be able to pivot and go back to any degree of mitigation that is commensurate with what the situation is. That doesn't sound like what you're saying. Yeah, look, I don't, I don't believe we will. I don't think we're going to go backwards this spring on masks and other kinds of mitigation. I think that this is going to be some kind of uptick in cases. You're right. It's not going to flow through to a big surge in hospitalization, so the impact will be lessened. And I think we'll get through it and we'll continue the declines as we get into the spring and the summer. I don't think this changes the narrative. We said all along that we thought there was going to be a bump in cases as B2 gained prevalence and as mitigation was lifted. Now we're seeing it. Um, we're going to have to get through it. And on the back end of this, we should continue the decline. South, South Korea and Hong Kong are really a tale of two cities and show the impact of vaccines. Over the month of March, um, Hong Kong experienced about 300,000 infections and 3,000 deaths. South Korea had 4.5 million infections and a comparable number of deaths. Amazing. All right. So I don't know. Am I getting a fourth Pfizer booster or not, Doc? Uh, I, I don't know. Are you the right guy to ask? Maybe not. Are you over 65? <laughs> Do I look over 65? I don't I think so. I won't I answer that. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Uh, Scott. And thank you for not answering. We'll see you next time, Scott. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, calming concerns over crypto and bad actors after renewed calls for the regulation over its use for what Joe calls nefarity. We'll hear from the founder of the crypto advocacy group, the Digital Chamber of Commerce. There is zero evidence or data suggesting that cryptocurrency are being widely used to evade sanctions. We're back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, 
packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. This week, a group of senators announced a new bill to block foreign crypto firms from doing business with sanctioned Russian entities. If enacted, it would grant the U.S. Treasury the power to restrict U.S.-based crypto exchanges from serving people in Russia. That means no transactions, nothing, for anyone with a Russian address. It would also give the president the power to sanction crypto firms helping Russian entities evade the sanctions already in place. Senator Elizabeth Warren, one of the bill's architects, joined CNBC this week to explain why this is the best way to nip Russian crypto money laundering in the bud. Russians know how to do this. We know that the North Koreans uh, and others have been able to evade sanctions by using cryptocurrency. So it's important that we, in effect, patch a hole in the bucket and make sure that there's not leakage through crypto, that we don't have, you know, these oligarchs who just move around a few hundred million dollars and just keep it out of the formal banking and you've system. Got now, if you tuned into crypto Twitter, you'd hear that Warren and her colleagues built the bill on a faulty premise that crypto is the money launderer's favorite tool, that crypto transactions for illicit activities are rampant. It's key to what crypto bulls call her anti-crypto crusade. It's a tale as old as blockchain, and reliably there's been backlash. Crypto advocates insist that blockchain is transparent. Public nature makes criminal activity unlikely. Famous crypto bull Michael Novogratz of Galaxy Digital said what a lot of his crypto colleagues were thinking on yesterday's broadcast. Warren is dead wrong here. State actors cannot use Bitcoin to evade sanctions, right? First of all, most of the transactions, the, the lion's share happen through exchanges that do KYC. Bitcoin operates on a public blockchain, which all the three letter security agencies have security looking at those things. And, you know, and so she's thinking about it wrong. You can't use it to hide illicit goods, but the little guy who Warren should care about right? The worker, the middle class guy can use it to protect his wealth. And I think we've got to flip that narrative. And I think you're seeing that in Congress, right? The young congressmen are saying, why are we listening to all these old people? Right. And, and so it's Rokana in California, uh, the guy in New York recently who came out and it's popular. And so I think the Democrats anti-crypto thing is really shifting to, uh, hey, at best, keep your mouth quiet. And you, what you should be doing is learning how this is going to really help progressive causes. Now, Reuters did a report that Russians were looking to liquidate billions of crypto in the United Arab Emirates. But those, as advocates will point out, were unconfirmed and anonymous. Other advocates have called the bill unconstitutional, even dangerous. Russians who may not support the war would be even further isolated inside their own country. It's also not just about Russia. The bill suggests requiring taxpayers to report transactions over $10,000. We got into crypto, regulation, and digital currencies role in the theater of war with Joe Kernan and a crypto advocate who spends most of her time working with lawmakers, Chamber of Digital Commerce CEO, Perian Boring. It's good to see you 
uh, Perianne. And, and the two, really, I think the two things that you hear most about uh, crypto or, or Bitcoin in particular, one you hear the, I, I coined a word that I guess is a word, but it, it's used for nefarious purposes, whether it's money laundering or in this case, it's nefarity. It's used for nefarity. And then the other is the, the energy usage and climate change and all in and, and, uh, that as well is, is the two tropes that you always hear posited by, by bears or people that are negative on it. Is she onto something though? Is Senator Warren onto something? Is that, is, should we be concerned about the use of Bitcoin for things that we don't want to happen? Like Senator Warren stated yesterday in the Senate banking hearing that she was surprised by the facts that she learned talking to the technologists who are providing analytic and front uh, forensic uh, data to law enforcement. Here are, here are the facts. There is zero evidence or data suggesting that cryptocurrency are being widely used to evade sanctions. Both the FBI and the White House have issued statements just in the past couple of weeks saying that cryptocurrencies are a poor tool for sanctions evasion. FinCEN from the Treasury Department has also said they're not seeing cryptocurrency used to evade sanctions at a wide scale. I think this is a non-issue, and I don't think some of our members of Congress are listening to their own administration. And look, Joe, the, the most frustrating thing about this is that the story we should be focused on is how cryptocurrency has played a key, a very significant role in Ukraine being able to defend itself against Russia and deploy life-saving aid on the ground in Ukraine. People have donated over $100 million in cryptocurrency to Ukraine. Look, the team that launched the official crypto fund of Ukraine, they testified in Senate banking yesterday, and they stated that it took them 10 minutes to set up the infrastructure to create that fund. 10 minutes. And then the Ministry of Defense was able to purchase and deploy critical supplies on a 24-hour turnaround. This is amazing. This is history uh, being unfolded un in front of us on how crypto is changing the way we interact and we transact around the world. We've got to be able to distinguish between the facts and the fears. And these knee-jerk reactions to want to regulate cryptocurrency could have significant unintended consequences that could undermine the national security of our allies. It's a tool. Uh, crypto and it, depending on the user, the tool it, it can go it can go either way. There are major selling points, Perianne, to crypto, and some of those major selling points are anonymity and decentralization and all these things that would be attractive to people that that don't want to be detected or, or want to do things that that can that can escape scrutiny theoretically. But at the same time, you bring up how those. It, how those uh, characteristics of crypto can be very powerful when used for good. So it, it, it's not the crypto itself is either moral or immoral. It's it's the way it's being used by the players. So, I mean, I can understand that, that you would want to, you know, not induce people with bad intent to even have an a, a easier way of, of doing it. So are there ways to do it without hurting the other uses, which are so positive? Look, law enforcement has significant abilities to track and trace virtual currency transactions. And again, there's no evidence that this is being used well, for widespread. It's attractive, things. though. It's an and if it's not, it, it probably will be. But as I pointed out once to the former Treasury secretary, in the 2000 years of money laundering, 
that we've seen in drug trafficking, 99.99% of that was done with, with currency, with, with dollars or, or other currency. So it gets done either way. So to, to just say you can't have crypto or you need to outlaw Bitcoin, because it's absurd, because it, it, it could be attractive. And I see, I, see the, I see the argument, but it's a small percentage of it right now. How did you like that EO that we saw, the executive order? Did that help? Uh, it's a long time coming. Look, Joe, we, we at the Chamber of Digital Commerce, we called for a national action plan for blockchain in 2019. Uh, so we were uh, we see this as a very encouraging step. Uh, as you may know, we have a very fragmented approach to regulation of virtual currency and digital assets in the United States between the SEC and the CFTC and FinCEN and IRS and Treasury. Congress is weighing in heavily. There's no strategy. There's no coordinated approach. And and the, the executive order lays out a path forward for the federal government to be able to coordinate. And hopefully we will see a lot of that red tape and bureaucracy be cleared up through this process. So we think it's a positive first step, but it's just a first step. There's still a lot of work to do. And further, we've taken a enforcement first posture towards this ecosystem. So I thought it was a huge validation for the administration to put out this executive order that states that blockchain technology is one of the most important technologies of the 21st century and the U.S. must be a leader of this ecosystem. So we're very supportive of that and really hope that this sets up a process to get regulatory clarity for businesses that are building on blockchains in the United States. Perianne, the, the great unbanked in the world, uh, th this offers hope uh, for those people uh, as well, or for people working hard and, and ravaged by inflation in this country. No, not in this country. It's not so bad yet. But we're, we do have it here. But think of other, think of other uh, countries, uh, South America. Or, Russia or, or, being one example. There, right. It was talked about yesterday in Senate banking that uh, Putin's opposition potentially is and may be relying on cryptocurrencies for everyday transactions. So again, we need to be very careful about uh, knee-jerk reactions based on fear and but ensure it's that not, our it's still too volatile. Bears and, and people that don't like it, they still say it's still too volatile to be used as a currency. And it moves around. It's more like a NASDAQ stock. It goes down when the NASDAQ goes down. It goes yeah, Treasury uh, regulates virtual currency by function. And they say it either needs to be a medium of exchange, a store of value, or a unit of account. It doesn't have to meet all three of those prongs. Are we using it as a medium of exchange today? Well, Ukraine is, and they're having significant success with that. But that volatility will level out as we reach mainstream adoption. We're only 13 years in into this technology ecosystem. So give it some time. It has tremendous promise. Don't regulate it out of existence because we're afraid of what we don't understand. So you think it, a half a million dollars per coin, Novogratz says that you don't think that that's, you don't think that he's uh, lost his marbles? <laughs> uh, in the long term, I think that's where it's going. You Look, okay. this, these are in the long term, these valuation models that investors like Galaxy and others use, uh, they don't really work too well in the short term. These are long term projections. So we're thinking five, 10, 20 year time frames. I mean, you've seen uh, his outfits, uh, Novogratz, because I don't know about the crypto side of things, but I, I, I think he may have lost his marbles at, at some point. But not about the, the five, not about the, not about the, the, not about the Bitcoin uh, forecast. Mary Ann, thank you. Good to have Great you on, on this, this morning. Brian, are you done for the day? I hope so.
<laughs> All right, there's that Chippendale shot again. Magic Mike will be on the 10. Stay tuned for that and on the 3. You got that to look yeah. forward to. Uh, <laughs> I'm rounding third and headed for home in the baseball analogy. That was Joe Nuxall, the youngest pitcher, one of the youngest ever. Make sure you join us. Thanks, guys. Next week. That's our pod for today and for the week. Thanks for joining us. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Our thanks to Brian Sullivan for sitting in today and to Mike Santoli for the market history lessons. I've been talking about 1962. You had to point that out. Then look at me when you say you weren't there. Yes, I was there. Well, I don't know if you were trading or betting basketball at the time. I was a savant. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Have a lovely weekend and we'll meet you back here on Monday. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, No one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.